Just suppose God searched through heaven and couldn't find one willing to be the supreme sacrifice that was needed that would buy eternal life for you and me. Some week reflecting on uh, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, amen, and as we think about what would have been if he had not, and, uh, and we would be lost and hopeless, and what a situation to be, and we see what our world is like when some just little conveniences are taken away. What about a life without hope in heaven? How miserable would we be? I mean, we think we're sad and miserable now. How miserable would we be if we, had the, we didn't have the hope of heaven? And it's, it's a, it's a sad, that would be a sad state of affairs to be in, for sure. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 this evening. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. And, um, and we'll, we'll look at a, a few verses here. While you're turning, I'll, I'm going to try to summarize some things so we can move along. Uh, there's two kings uh, set in play here in the 2 Chronicles chapter 16. There is King Basha. Uh, it's a little confusing because the Bible calls him Asa Basha. And, uh, and then later on, just goes calling him Basha. And so uh, King Basha is the king of Jerusalem, or Israel. And, uh, and then there is King Asa, who's the king of Judah. And King Basha 
comes against King Judah, or the king of Judah, Asa, and begins to build a wall. Um, the Bible tells us in verses 1 through 10, if you were to read through that, he begins to build up some kind of fortress that would keep people from coming into Judah or from going out. Basically, for all intents and purposes, what was taking place was King Basha was putting siege against King Asa. All right? And, um, and so, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got the comedy section over here. I feel like this is stand-up routine tonight. And uh, we just going to have to tune them out over here. All right. So, hopefully you're following along because I've lost track of where I'm at. Either way, we know that the king Asa of Judah, he gets scared. He realizes that his city, Judah, is not going to survive if uh, King Basha is able to build up this fortress and keep his people from going out or from people coming in. And so, King Asa gets an idea. He says, you know what, I got some money over there in the temple, and uh, we're blessed, and, I, and I've got some money, and so I, I think what I could do is I could go over there, and I could get some of that money, and I'm going to go hire the Syrians to fight this battle. There's no way I can fight against King Basha. I can't, I can't win against him, and uh, if, if I were to go against him, I would lose, and so he goes over to uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, and he goes to Benadad and he says, hey, uh, we've had leagues in the past. You had leagues with my father. We've had cooperation before. Here's some money. Will you go against the king of Israel, King uh, uh, Basha? And so this Syrian king agrees, Benadad agrees. And he goes and he attacks some of the, the cities of Israel, uh, Ijon, Dan, and uh, Abelmaim. And he attacks these cities, and, and the king of Israel realizes, hey, you know what, I better pull back from this and go defend uh, my, other, my other cities, and he does. And so King Asa here, the one who bought out the Syrians and, and, and felt like he couldn't win the battle, he has the victory. Man, not only does that, he gets the spoils of war. If you were to read through those verses in 2 Chronicles 16, 1 through 10, you would see that he gets to go and take all of the timbers and the stone and everything that King Basha had been building with, siege against him, he took all of that stuff, and the Bible says that he was able to go build up a couple different cities from that material. And so you look, when you read this story up to verse 10, um, or I'm sorry, verse, through verse 6, really, is that it looks like King Asa really made out. He got, he got the Syrians to fight his battle. It cost him a little bit of coin from the temple. But hey, he got the spoils of war. He was able to build up a couple cities. And everything was peace for him. What a wise king. He solved his problem. Little bit of wisdom. He got into that temple, used money. But Hanani, the seer of the day, the prophet of the day, God's man of the day, well, he didn't see it the same way. In verse number 7, look with me if you would, 16, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 7. It says, And at that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Listen, because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thy hand, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims 
a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thy hand. Uh, Hanani comes to Asa and he says, Asa, you missed out big, buddy. God didn't want you just to win a battle against Israel. He wanted to defeat Syria as well. But you missed out on the opportunity because you relied upon yourself and you did not rely upon the Lord. You said, hey, I'll go hire Syria and they can fight my battle for me. And then Hanani brings to remembrance, he says, hey, what about the Ethiopians? What about uh, the Lubins, the Lubims? Weren't they a big company? Weren't they a mighty enemy, a formidable foe? But the Lord, when you relied upon him, didn't he come through for you? Didn't he deliver you? Hananiah is not seeing this like Asa was wise. Asa walked away with all the spoils of war. But Hananiah comes, the seer, the man of God, comes to, to Asa and he says, Asa, what are you thinking? You missed out. And he says in verse number nine, look at these words. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. He said, Hananiah is here with Asa. And in my wild imagination, I see him in frustration. Asa, you have no idea. God was looking for this opportunity. God, was, God had put this in front of you. He had placed these situations in your midst. So that at the time that they would arrive, just as you had done in the past, that not, you wouldn't turn to yourself, you wouldn't turn to your own ideas, your own uh, uh, resolutions, that you would turn to, to God. That you would rely upon Him so He could show Himself strong. He's been looking. Asa, God has been looking for a man in whom he can show himself strong. You were to be that man. But you missed it. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Oh boy, not only did Asa mess this thing up, but he caused a lot of undue conflict in the future. Battles he shouldn't have had to face. But he created them. And the moment he began to rely upon himself. Asa didn't like this message. In verse number 10 it says, Then Asa was wroth with the seer and put him in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this thing. Not only that, Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Why? He didn't like it. He didn't like it, and so he got in an emotional fit through the man of God in prison. said, shut up, I don't want to hear from you anymore. That's a bad situation to be in right there. Sometimes we have solutions to problems in our lives. Sometimes these solutions are effective to resolve the issue at hand. 
we see that Asa had a solution, and his solution was effective. When he went in, he got the coin, he hired Syria, and he conquered his enemy. But the solution, although it was effective, was not of God. Asa looked to himself instead of looking to the Lord for direction in this time of distress. Asa was in a time of turmoil and fear. But it may just be that when we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't understand, it's so that God can show himself strong. It's so that he can demonstrate his power. Far too often, church, far too often, we are more worried about our convenience, our comfort, and our personal pleasures than we are worried about God showing himself strong through us. It's in these moments that we make decisions like King Asa. Decisions that are effective to solve the problem at hand, but cause bigger problems down the road. In conversations that I've had over the last several weeks, uh, even with pastor, he has made wise decisions. Church, be thankful for your pastor. He has made wise decisions from the onset and lessons that, honestly, I learned going through this thing. The Lord has shown me, and even these, this is one of them. It's not always the, the solution you, that works, that God wants to work. Sometimes there's other things at play. And we do well to stop and look to the Lord and see how He wants to be glorified in this situation. The Apostle Paul, he, he had the prayer, the prayer of his heart was that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable unto His death. Too often in our hearts, the prayer that we pray is that I may know God's salvation and still enjoy the comforts of this world mixed with the fellowship of my church friends. But not too much sacrifice. And please, God, don't ask me to fit into your mold. We have our own little prayer we pray. We're not worried about God getting the glory. And sadly, as a result of that, we miss out on him showing himself strong through us. <laughs> don't you want him to show himself strong? I know that in the depths of my heart, I want God to show himself strong through me. I know that when I examine my heart, I want, man, I read these stories in scripture. And I see how God performed the miracles that he performed. And I say, man, what would it be like? The world has yet to see what God could do. Through one man, wholly dedicated to him. That's how D.L. Moody felt about it anyway. But the Bible is littered full of examples of people who allowed, who allowed God to show himself strong through them. One of the prime examples for me anyway is in 1 Kings chapter 18. Would you turn there? 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the well-known story of the prophet, once again, a man of God. It's funny how God always uses men of God when he's uh, performing these great things. Not because of their title, simply because of their heart. 
1 Kings chapter 18, we see the story of Elijah. I have stood on Mount Carmel. It's a funny thing to stand in places like this because anytime you read the word of God, it is so vivid. Do you understand that Mount Carmel, a little fun fact, Mount Carmel oversees the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. When you're standing on Mount Carmel, you are looking on, from one side, you are looking on a, the, the top of a, a mountain here. It's more like a large hill. You're looking down into the Valley of Megiddo. And the Armageddon, where Armageddon will take place, where the blood, and you can picture, you can see how wide this valley is, and the blood will be up to the bridles of the horses, four or five feet deep in, in this valley that is hundreds and hundreds of yards um, wide and <clears throat> thousands of yards long. Right now, it's a military airstrip for the Israeli army. Seems like an appropriate place for a battleground, huh? And, um, and so, Mount Carmel. Here, Elijah finds himself entrenched in a battle against the prophets of Baal. And we know on this side of history that God is about to show himself incredibly powerful through the prophet Elijah. But the people didn't see it that way. The people at this point were were double-minded. They were unsure of really who they were going to serve. I think King Asa probably was a lot like these people. The people who were there when Elijah was on Mount Carmel. I believe that King Asa knew God. We know that in his life he had seen God work through him in a strong way. When he beat the Ethiopians and the Lubbins. What a tongue twister. But for some reason his heart and his attention had turned Away from God. And these children of Israel, like Asa, in the days of Elijah, they were also conflicted about who they would serve. And I think our churches today have a lot of conflict in their mind. Like I said, we want the God of salvation. We want the God and His salvation. But do we want to serve that God? Do we want him to be able to show himself strong in us? Or are we content with the gift that we've received? I want to preach a message tonight, very quickly, entitled, Are God's Eyes Passing Over You? See, those eyes, they go to and fro looking for a man in whom they can show themselves strong. The children of Israel, well, Asa, first of all, he missed his opportunity, and God's eyes passed over him. The children of Israel fortunately have a man of God right there, and and he's got God's eyes. They're upon him. Elijah has got the touch of God on his life. And God's about to show himself strong through Elijah. But I wonder, as we go through this message tonight, are God's eyes passing over you? Is he searching for someone to show himself strong through today? But he can't find a man? He can't find the person in whom he can show himself strong? So we'll tackle that topic here as we look at this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
Lord, we do ask that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, help me to be concise and help the message to do your work in our lives and our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give me utterance as only you can. Lord, that you would direct me as we go through this time. Lord, I pray that you'd be with every listening ear. May our hearts be attentive to what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Elijah's gonna go through a process here in 1 Kings chapter 18. A process where he is going to allow God to show himself strong in front of these people, in front of the prophets of Baal <clears throat> and in front of the children of Israel. But before he is able to allow God to show himself strong, Elijah goes through a process. And that's the process I want us to highlight tonight. It, <laughs> peradventure, that you do want the Lord to show himself strong in your life. I believe that there are some things that we can learn here, some things that Elijah was wanting the people to see and understand as he went through this process of allowing God to work through him uh, against the prophet of Baal, the prophets of Baal. And we see in verse number 21, the first thing that takes place in this, the beginning of this battle. It says in 1 Kings 18, 21, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if he be Baal, then follow him. The first thing that I want you to notice tonight, when Elijah came and as he was preparing to allow God to work in a strong way through him, first thing he did of the people is he required a decision. He required them that they would make a decision. He said, if the Lord be God, then follow him. But if he be Baal, then follow him. I wonder this evening, what would you have said if you were there? The Bible says that the people that were there answered him not a word. It says that they were undecided, that they were unsure, that they did not know at that very moment who they truly put their faith and trust in. And we, we I think when we read a passage like this in, in our own mind, we instinctively say, oh, I would have stepped right up. I would have been the first one in line. I Want to serve God. He's real. I think we give ourselves too much credit. As a matter of fact, I know we give ourselves too much credit. The reason I know this is because of Revelation chapter 3. that says that the Laodicean church, the attitude of the Laodicean church, our church age, is that they say that I am increased with the goods and have need of nothing. If that is the attitude of the church in which the church age in which we live, my friend, I would venture to say more of us would answer not a word than would have jumped over that line. You say, well, that's that's pretty that's pretty dogmatic. I'm sorry, it's not my words. It's not my position. Because like you, I fall into this latency in church age. And like you, I fall prey to the same mentality and struggles. If you were there, what would you have said? I think a lot of us would have not answered a word. But Elijah wasn't looking to the people for a verbal response. As in it was, he just wanted them to tell him something. Elijah was after something deeper. He was after a heart response. Who is your God? Is it Baal? Or is it God? Jehovah God. And I think if we are 
ever going to see God work strong through us, this decision, this question has to be answered in our hearts. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be answered with our lips. My people draw nigh to me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. William Barrett Travis had been in a situation for several days in which he knew he would not come out alive. He was in an old Spanish mission called the Alamo. It had become hopeless. Several thousand soldiers of the Mexican general Antonio Lopez, Santa Ana, that's how I knew him, had come up against the Alamo. Colonel Travis, he's inside of the Alamo with uh, around 190 other men, if I recall correctly. And as story goes, the young Texas colonel stood in front of his men one day. This was not a soldier. He was a colonel, but really he was just pulled into this war. He was a lawyer. He wasn't a military man, but he did know enough of history to know that once a siege usually started, it's the people on the inside who usually lose the battle. So he gathered all the men together and gave them a stirring speech. <laughs> he opened it with these words, we must die. What a way to motivate a company of men. <laughs> we must die, he began. Our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but to choose the manner of our death. He saw three possibilities. Surrender, and obviously execution. They could try to fight their way out of the fort and obviously be butchered at the bayonets of Santa Ana's men. Or they could remain in this fort, as he stated, and resist every assault and to sell our lives as dearly as possible. With a flourish, Travis pulled out his sword and began to drag it through the sand. Once he did that, he stepped to one side of that line and he said, men, will you come over to this side with me? Who will stay and fight? If you want to leave, go ahead. 187 men walked across that line. I think it was 189 men there altogether. 187 of them crossed the back across that line. Said, we will sell our lives dearly. Resist every assault. Two men didn't. One of those men was Jim Bowie, who was badly injured, and he asked the people standing by, would you carry me across that line? The other was a soldier of fortune. Can't remember his name right now. But he would go on to sneak out of the fort that night and make it through enemy lives and supposedly survive, live out to his old age years. We know the outcome of the Alamo. We know that in just a few short hours, all of those men would wind up giving their lives. The question that I'm asking you tonight is not like Colonel Travis's. It is not a matter of We must die. Let's choose how we die. 
Tonight, I'm asking a question, rather I'm I'm reposing a question that was asked thousands of years ago to God's people. And the question is not about how we die, but rather how we will live. How will you live your Christian life? And yes, I mean Christian life. Will you live it in service to God or service to Baal? The choice is up to you, and the results will be catastrophic. Catastrophic in both ways. Catastrophic as in the power of God being shown and demonstrated through your life, or you being faced with battles that you never should have fought. How will you live? The first thing that happened when Elijah came to this people and said, hey, if we're going to allow God to show himself strong in us, we must answer this. And he said, I require an answer from you. What will be your answer? Will you serve God or will you serve Baal? And they answered him not a word. Elijah moves on from that moment, allowing them to answer not a word. But their answer would eventually come. How long halt ye between two opinions? How long will we be double-minded? Oh, it is so easy. It is so easy to get caught up in this world and to become fixated on our solutions to our problems and feel like we've got all of them solved. But God is not showing himself strong. I think, at least in my opinion, when I look around the world today, I don't have an overwhelming sense of God is showing himself strong. As in great awakening. As in revival. But that's what I desire. That's what I want. That's what I know he's capable of. So then the question must be answered in our hearts, not our lips, in our hearts. Will you serve God or will you serve Baal? The people answered him not a word. And so Elijah moved on to verse number 25 where he says, And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose ye one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods and put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning and uh, and even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And here we see the maniac priest of Baal jumping up and down and crying out to God and taking out the knife and cutting themselves and morning until evening or even noon and then from noon until night they're going crazy trying to get the attention of their God trying to trying to show uh, that their God is powerful that he can perform and they're doing everything that they can even as much as the climbing up on that altar and jumping on it I think Elijah was letting the people see something. God was in the control here, but Elijah's standing back. He put them on display first. He said, hey, prophets of Baal, there's a bunch of you guys. I want you to go ahead and go first. You don't think Elijah could have went first and squashed this whole thing before it even started? You think it had to play out this way? You think God had to wait a little bit to see the prophets of Baal do their whole little thing before God would show himself strong? 
No, I think God's putting on a show for his people to see something. And I think Elijah is guiding the people to, to the position where they're in a viewing, uh, a good view, a good po- a point of view. You know what Elijah did? First of all, he required that they make a decision. Second thing that he did is he revisited the weakness of our flesh. What did he do? He said, let me take you on a journey. I want you to come over here. Prophets of Baal, go ahead. Here's a bullock. Put it on the altar and you do your thing. He said, children of Israel, gather around. Come here, gather around. Let's watch. And they sat there from morning until afternoon, until evening. They watched the prophets of Baal cut themselves. They watched the prophets of Baal jump upon the altar. They watched the prophets of Baal struggle and cry and do battle and try to get the attention of their God. And all the while, nothing happened. Why? Because our flesh is weak. Our flesh is not capable. Our flesh, in our flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. And these prophets of Baal put on a demonstration of flesh. They did everything humanly possible to get the, pro- the god, the false god Baal, to consume that altar. To consume that sacrifice. But they got nothing accomplished. Remember, they answered him not a word, and so Elijah had to take him on a little journey. and Revisit the weakness of our flesh. If you and I are going to get to a point where God's eyes stop on us and he shows himself strong in our lives, we are going to have to stop and revisit the weakness of our flesh. Far too often, we think we are capable. Far too many mornings, we wake up and we ignore the precepts of God's word. Far too often, we go through a decision process without ever once consulting the Holy Spirit of God. Far too often, we discipline our children without involving the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts and their lives. Far too often, we interact with our spouses in emotional outbursts rather than being ruled by our spirit. We need to stop and we need to revisit the fact That you and I, in our flesh, are nothing. And these prophets of Baal got up on the altar. And they beat themselves silly, trying to get Baal to respond. And if you and I are honest about it, we beat ourselves silly far too often when God is just looking around, saying, hey, I've got this power here, and I'm looking to dump it on somebody. Will you be willing to receive it? But in our flesh, in that Laodicean church age flesh, we are increased with goods and have need of nothing. And we go about our every single day lives that way. And Elijah said, we need to stop along this journey here. We need to revisit the idea. Hey, church, gather around and let's look at the world. They have no solutions. They have no answers. They have nothing but confusion and chaos and hopelessness. It's not going to be found in the world. It's not going to be found in our flesh. Let's just stop for a minute and strip aside everything that we've become uh, become encumbered with. And realize that our flesh is weak. It's weak. 
Elijah puts it on display right in front of the people. We know the end of the story. We know that Elijah is about to do something that is going to blow people's minds because God's eyes are going to be upon him and God is going to perform something mighty through Elijah. But there was a little journey that Elijah was taking the people on. And he revisited the weakness of our flesh. Brings us to verse number 30. Where Elijah is done with the display of their flesh. It says in verse number 30, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. You see this again? Listen to the words. He called them and said, Hey, I want you to come up close to me now. Come, come here. Gather around. Sounds like he's going to preach them a message, right? He's about to teach them something. Surely, when someone calls you, they have something to say. Elijah says, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he began to expound to them the truths of God's word. No. The Bible says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. If we're going to ever be able to get God's eyes to stop upon us, we're going to have to revisit the weakness of our flesh, but we're going to have to repair the altar of the Lord. Elijah said, hey, did you see what happened? These people, they're trying to accomplish something in their flesh and they actually destroyed the altar in the process. They destroyed that, that symbol. For us, it's a symbol. For them, it was something different, but for us, it's a symbol. Sacrifice, dedication, remembrance. I think too many altars have been broken down in our lives because we've been going about our business trying to solve our own problems. And as we've been trying to solve our own problems, we've been beating ourselves silly, destroying the altar of God. There is no dedication in our lives. There is no commitment and there is no remembrance. We need to stop. If we're going to get God's eyes to stop upon us, we need to rebuild the altar. We need to repair the altar. He said, hey, children of Israel, will you come close? Will you come close? The Bible says he bends down and he picks up a stone. One by one, he takes the 12 stones, represent the tribes of Israel. The Bible says that he rebuilds the altar of the Lord. I think there's two reasons we need to rebuild altars today. We know we've knocked them down because of our own flesh, trying to accomplish something in our own flesh, just like the prophets of Baal. But we need to rebuild the altar of the Lord in our lives because we need to get back to that point of being right with God. We knock down that altar. You know, an altar is was, a, was a, a place of doing business with God. And we do so little business with God and so much business in our own flesh that we tread on the altar of God. We knock it down. And Elijah said, hey folks, God's gonna, God wants to show himself strong. He wants to show himself strong right now. But before he can do that, we need to rebuild this altar. 
We need to get right with God. We need to realize that there's some stones that need to be erected and put in place. And we need to put these stones back up where they belong in their rightful place. We need to get things in order. And we need to get things in the places they should be. Our lives shouldn't be a mess. Our lives shouldn't be chaos. There's a certain way that God wants us to live. And there's a certain way that he wants us to conduct ourselves in the world in which we live. And we've got to take these stones and let's put them all back in place. Let's agree with God about our sin. and Let's agree with God about our backslidden heart. And let's agree with God about our our need for him. And and let's agree with God that, hey, his eyes have been passing over us. And and let's agree, let's do business with him. And and as his Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives, we take those stones and we rebuild the altar. And as we rebuild that altar, we're one step closer to the eyes of God that are roaming to and fro, being able to stop on us and show himself strong. And Elijah takes those stones, but you know what? I don't think that he just called them close by uh, where they could watch him rebuild that altar just so he could teach them that the altar needed to be erected. Now, I think he called them close by because it's a picture for us today uh, to see that, hey, people that are close to us are wanting to know what our altar is about. Remember the children in Joshua? Do you remember? Remember when Joshua told them and said, hey, put the stones out and God instructed all of this. And, and he said, when the, when the children ask you, why are the stones out? You say, oh, because of the great things God has done. I think we need a rebuilding and a repairing of those altars in our homes. I think our children need to see and hear and and we need to talk about the great things that God has done. I think our children hear about our work sagas and our dramas and our family feuds. I think our, our children hear about our own conflicts with one another, husband and wife. They hear about our discontentment with leadership at church. They hear about how they didn't like the message or uh, why someone made a bad decision. I think our children hear a lot of things, but I don't think that they're hearing enough of you. Hey, <laughs> let me tell you about what God has done in my life. Oh, man, if, uh, as I reflect and, and I think about my childhood and I think about my parents who were far from perfect and would say, <laughs> first in line to say they were far from perfect, one thing I know uh, that my parents were awesome, and the older I get, the more awesome they were. I'll tell you that right now, because I know how hard it is and how hard they were struggling to do the things that they did. But I know one thing that my dad, especially, oh, buddy, let me tell you right now, he talked about the goodness and the grace of God. Yes, he had a temper. Yes, he got upset. Yes, he was angry. But he talked about the grace of God. Oh, there, but the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of times I heard that phrase. But for the grace of God, there go I. And we need a rebuilding and a repairing of these altars in our home if God is ever going to stop His eyes upon us and show Himself strong in your life, in my life. We've got to repair the altar, get right with God, do business with God, and let our children and those that are close by see how good God has been 
in our lives. God is good. You think we have it tough during coronavirus. Try being in Italy. Or any other country for that matter. I've been in a bunch of them and none of them compare. We're spoiled rotten. And lack appreciation for it. God is so good to us. And Elijah got down and he called those people and he said, get by. Come on over here. Come on over here. Hey, Elijah wasn't doing this. Listen. Oh man, this is, to me, this is awesome. I love this. Elijah wasn't doing this because he had to in order for God. Hey, Elijah didn't have to rebuild the altar so that God could smash it. Elijah didn't have to rebuild the altar so that God could show himself strong. Elijah already had the touch of God upon his life. Elijah only rebuilt that altar for those people to see. I don't think that altar had to be built in order for for God to rain fire down. Let me say, well, that sounds sacrilegious. I'll I'll just categorize that under opinion. But he called those people over and he, he said, watch me rebuild this altar. For nothing else, we certainly know that he wanted them to see him rebuild that altar. That altar of sacrifice and commitment and dedication. Elijah knew what was about to happen. He said, I want to give God the greatest platform I possibly can. Elijah had already been at, where was it, Zarephath? Zarephath? Tell me if I'm right in the comments. Zarephath. I think Zarephath, where he had the barrel of oil. And it didn't run out. He had the barrel of meal that never ran out. Where he raised the widow's son. Oh, Elijah had already seen and known and had known in his own personal life what it was like to see God work strong through him. <laughs> Elijah, remember this is the same Elijah, just so we're on the same page. This is the same Elijah that's about to be called to heaven without ever dying. Oh, Elijah knew what it was right to, like to have a heart that was right before the Lord. Elijah knew what it was like to be right before the Lord. Elijah knew what it was like to have the touch of God upon his life. He wasn't going through these motions simply to have the touch of God upon his life. He was putting on a display to try to teach these children of Israel. There were some things that that had to be put in place. Some corrections that had to be made. And he erects this altar. He wanted the people to see him do it. And I think if we're going to have the touch of God upon our lives, we're going to have to repair the altar. So Elijah comes to these people. God's about to show himself strong through Elijah, but before that, he requires a decision of the people. Will you serve God or will you serve man? They answer him not a word, so he revisits the weakness of flesh. He repairs the altar, and finally, he requests the power of God. You see, there where Elijah comes... And he calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse number 36. It says, And it came to pass 
the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, I, uh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all things, uh, all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this, thy, uh, that this people may know that thou art God. I'm going to stop right there. Don't read. Stop. Look at me. Elijah's relishing in the power of God. Elijah is, and I'm not talking about relishing like a maniacal, whoa, I know what's going to happen. Elijah knows what's going to happen. He has seen God work in such powerful ways that he knew the children of Israel that their minds were about to be blown. He knew that God was going to work so mightily through him in this very moment that something amazing besides the sacrifice being consumed was about to happen. Do you see what he says there? told you to stop reading. Hopefully you didn't. In the bottom of verse number 37, he says, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. God had already done a work in these people's hearts. They just didn't know it yet. This was before, remember, they're still undecided as far as we know. He's trying to get them to make a decision. Up to this point, he said, choose ye this day. But he knew something was about to happen. He knew that God was already at work. He knew that something powerful was about to take place in their lives. And he said, hey, I just want these people to see it. And I've done these things at your word so that they'll finally realize that you've turned their hearts back to you. I mean, that blows my mind. But God was already working. And here Elijah was relishing in the power of God. That God was doing a work in these people's lives that they didn't even recognize at that time. The man of God saw it. And he kept pushing for it. And he did everything he needed to in order to facilitate it. But the people didn't know it yet. If this isn't a plug for following the man of God, I don't know what is. Oh, I don't see it. Well, is he doing the biblical thing? Is he following God's word? Is he contradicting God's word? The follow. Well, I just don't agree with it. I didn't ask if you agreed with it, and neither does God. Is it biblical? Is it right? Then follow. Well, I don't see how this is going to turn out good. I don't care. Neither did these people. But the man of God saw it. God had already shown it to him. And he was just leading the people that direction. And he was just relishing in the fact that I know what God's going to do in their lives. Hey, you know what? God places people in our lives. Children, young people, teenagers, you have parents. Now, parents, be the man of God, the woman of God that you should be. But teenagers, you follow them. Oh, I don't agree with it. I don't like it. I don't care. You follow it. There's blessing at the end of that road. There's God working strong and mightily in your life if you'll follow. Yeah, your parents see down there. They do. They see to the end of that road. As a matter of fact, they've can see their own footprints on it still. Follow. Church member, follow your pastor. 
Follow your pastor. He's following God. Follow your pastor. Pray for him. He's following God. Follow your pastor. Wives, follow your husband. Husband, be the leader spiritually of your home. Get the eyes of God upon you. Don't get yourself in a position like King Asa where God's looking for a man to show himself strong. And his eyes are going to and fro and to and fro. I sought for a man to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, but I found none. Has God's eyes been passing over you? Oh, he's looking. I think in the environment that we're in today and the circumstances that we're in today, he's looking more than ever. And he's looking with a purpose. To show himself strong. Do you want it? Well, then choose you this day. If you're undecided, well, you need to take a little journey like the children of Israel. Revisit the weakness of your flesh. You need to remember the power of God. Repair the altar. And then you'll be able to relish in his power. Have God's eyes been passing over you? Father, we do thank you for your word, its power, its effectiveness. Lord, we praise you that it is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, there is no doubt in my mind about your leading in this message. There is no doubt in my mind about its need in the hour in which we live. God, as your eyes pass over Community Baptist Temple, may your eyes find a man. Lord, we know we have a man of God, but there's a church full of people that need the power of God. I think there's a bunch of people, Lord, in this church that desire the power of God. But we're not really decided the way that we ought to be about who will serve. Lord, may your Holy Spirit convict us, draw us, rebuke, and exhort us. And may we respond to your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Even where you're at as the piano plays for us this evening. Just right there in your living room, would you make an altar?